Well, uh, this morning we're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13, as we jump back into our follow series. We've been in this series uh, throughout most of the course of 2021 because we are really zeroed in on discovering and rediscovering what it means to follow Jesus with everything we've got. And so the Gospel of Mark is helping us do that. And now we find ourselves in the final week of the life of Christ. And as you uh, turn there, as you find that uh, section, Mark chapter 12, maybe on a Bible app, um, I just have a news flash for you today uh, that, that might catch you a little bit off guard. But uh, your pastor, this one, is not perfect. Okay? Your, your pastor is not perfect. Now, I know that's really hard for some of you to believe. I know that it is shocking. In fact, there are some of you right now that are saying, uh, Tanner, you are so trustworthy, that, but, but I'm having a hard time believing that you are not perfect. Can I get an amen here this morning? All right, thank you. I see those hands. I, see, I hear those, amen. But anyway, I just need to give you some evidence that uh, Pastor Tanner is not perfect. Uh, and this evidence comes from a, a previous time in my life that was, uh, you know, brought back to my memory this past week when uh, John and Pastor Reddy and I uh, went to North Carolina to uh, the seminary where uh, Pastor John Chastain and I graduated from. It was the place where I met my beautiful wife through some mutual friends. And it was the place where I served for six years as the intern to the president of the seminary. Now, uh, before I became a church planter and pastor, what did you do, Tanner? I was a professional intern. Interned all through college with youth ministry in my church, and then uh, went to seminary and interned there. Uh, so I was a professional intern before I became uh, a pastor and church planter. Well, um, you know, there were, there were a lot of great things that I got to do as the intern to the president. And, you know, it was kind of, you know, somewhat envious. To, uh, of, others might have been a little envious of me because I got to hang out with the president of our seminary. Uh, but, but, you know, one of my primary responsibilities was to take Dr. Danny Aiken to and from the airport. And as you can imagine, the number one rule was not be on time, but be early right? So, uh, you know, presidents are quite busy. They have a lot of responsibilities on their plate. They're traveling all over the country. And so it was super important that I took care of business to the best of my ability. And to be honest, I had it down to a science. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I basically executed with flawless perfection. Uh, when it was time to take Dr. Aiken to RDU, Raleigh-Durham Airport, I would show up 10 minutes early to his home. I would let myself in, grab his suitcase, load it up in the car, uh, grab two Diet Cokes, one for him, one for me. As soon as he came out the door, boom, we were on the road, 27 minutes to the airport. Dr. Aiken, see you Tuesday night, Friday morning, whatever it was. And he knew I would be back, not just on time but early. And, and pickups were even easier. I knew I left my apartment at 45 minutes earlier, walked over to his home, grabbed his car 40 minutes early, drive to 27 minutes. I'm there at least 13 minutes early, waiting for that ominous text, landed. 
as the wheels touch the ground, right? So as soon as Dr. Aiken hit the, the runway, it's landed, and that means I've got time for at least two or three circles depending on traffic. And if I time it just right, he probably only has to wait 15 to 30 seconds before I am curbside ready to take him back to Wake Forest, North Carolina for the 27-minute drive. And as you can see, I mean, just, I mean, is there not evidence that there was essentially flawless perfection every single time to and from the airport? Everything was perfect until that one time it was not perfect. So uh, one night, I am doing like most great seminary students would, would be doing. I'm laying in my bed. I'm reading a book, and I see my, my cell phone light up, and, and it, it says, Dr. Aiken. And I'm thinking, what's Dr. Aiken doing messaging me this late? Uh, what, what, what does he need? And I open my phone, my little flip phone back in that day, and, you know, punch the little, you know, envelope, and it says, that's right, landed. <laughs> so your boy sprints, literally sprints over to his house in about 25 seconds, grabs the keys to his car, drives much faster than I should have to the airport, praying simultaneously that A, his bags would be delayed coming around, and B, that I would not get a ticket, not because I was so concerned about my driving record or paying a fine, but because I did not want to be later than I already was. And needless to say, Dr. Aiken is waiting curbside, his arms are crossed, and by the time he gets in the car and is not very receptive to my apology, the icy atmosphere ends with me dropping him off at his home and him saying five words, don't let it happen again. <laughs> Pastor Tanner is not a perfect man, and I've got more than just that one instance of evidence. But, you know, in that moment, I needed correction. In that moment, I needed rebuke because in that moment, I did not honor my mentor, friend, and boss, and I needed to feel the weight of the inconvenience that I caused him. There are times in life where we need to be corrected. There are times in life where we need to be rebuked. And when we come to Mark chapter 12, we find one of the strongest rebukes ever given to human beings from the lips of Jesus as he teaches them what it means to know God, live for him, and to walk with him as he desires. And so I want to read for us Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 27, these two stories of Jesus' encounter his last week of his life on Tuesday. Here we go. It says this in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher... We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Here's the question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, here it is. Is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. From the words of Jesus today, I want to teach you three things you better know, all right? Three things you better know. And the first we find in verses 13 through 17 on the lips of Jesus, he would say that we need to know our lives belong to God. The first encouragement for you this this morning is this. The the first thing you better know is this. Know your life belongs to God. What we have here in verse 13 are the religious leaders known as the Pharisees coming with, which was not always common for them, coming with the political leaders known as the Herodians because Mark tells us that they wanted to ask him a question in order that they might trap him in his talk. They were like lions prowling around, waiting for Jesus to say something contrary to the beliefs or the 
convictions of the people that they might say, hey, this man is guilty. He does not follow the ways of God, and we are going to hand him over to the authorities that he might be crucified. But the way they start in verse 14, it might be a strategy if you're trying to, you know, bait someone into a conversation where they don't expect it. They, they give all of these words of flattery in verse 14. They said, look at this, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. I mean, what a great compliment for someone so secure in who they are that they just say what needs to be said. What a great compliment to Jesus. And then he, they go on and they say, for you are not swayed by appearances and you truly teach the way of God. I mean, they are just piling one compliment on top of the other which then leads them to their question. The two questions they ask really go together when they ask these questions. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Here's what's going on. The religious leaders, along with the political leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they are trying to put Jesus in a dilemma. They ask him what we could call is a no-win question. Either way, that they ask a yes or no question. If Jesus answers yes, the people are not going to like it. And if he answers no, the people are not going to like it. If Jesus says yes, what he is effectively doing is saying, hey, you need to give tribute to Rome and you need to... Uh, Give not only tribute to Rome, but you need to give tribute to Caesar. Because, because on a denarius, which I have one right here that some of our members visited Rome. This isn't, I don't think it's real. Otherwise, I should have it in a safe somewhere. But, um, you know, it, it has uh, Caesar's inscription on the front. And, and there's a, these words that pay tribute to the divine Caesar. And so not only did did uh, did this Jews not want to, to pay the Roman taxes, but, but most of that was because the denarius was a reminder of the supremacy of Caesar. That every time they paid taxes, they felt like they were giving homage and, yes, worship to Caesar. So if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, then everyone's going to be in an uproar because no good Jews appreciated Roman tyranny and oppression coming in and taking uh, their, their land over and making them pay these unjust taxes. But then, of course, if Jesus says no and makes all of the Jewish people love his declaration, the Romans are going to not appreciate his statement because what? He is going to be then charged with insurrection, right? He is going to be charged with disobeying Roman rule and that's going to be grounds for the Herodians to take Jesus to the Romans and say, you need to do away with this man, and so Jesus is trapped in a dilemma, uh, and he sees this. He knows this. That's why in verse 15 it says, but knowing their hypocrisy. Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 20, verse 23, it says that Jesus perceived their craftiness. In another version it says that he saw through their duplicity. 
And in that moment, let's not forget that Jesus was the wisest teacher who ever lived. In that moment, Jesus does not answer with a yes. He does not answer with a no. He provides a different answer. He says, bring me a denarius. And I can just see Jesus now, and he's, he's looking over that coin, and perhaps he's flipping it from one side to the other, and the suspense is building so much so that perhaps maybe the Pharisees and the Herodians are saying, hey, we've got him this time. He doesn't know how to answer. But Jesus answers their question with a question. He first off calls out their hypocrisy. He says, hey, why are you putting me to the test? I know what you're up to. But then after he looks at the denarius, he, he asks this question. He says, whose inscription is this? Whose likeness and inscription is this? There was only one answer. This is Caesar's inscription. And Jesus, with the most profound wisdom, gives this answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. With one simple sentence, he evades their question but gives us two profound truths that actually satisfy everyone because it's the way that God has made our world and calls us to live in our world. He, he, he gives us two commands effectively in this one statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and render to God the things that are God. First, he says that we should fulfill our earthly obligations. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, it is right and just for you to pay taxes because ultimately while it may look like Rome is in authority and they are running things here in Israel right now, what you need to understand is that God is sovereign. That means God is in control. He has the ultimate authority over all human government and he allows human governments to exercise uh, rule and authority when they're right and good to uh, promote good and protect us against evil and vice. And so Jesus says, look, uh, you need to give Caesar what is owed to Caesar. Today, we might say this, render to Uncle Sam the things that are Uncle Sam's. And listen, I know April 15th comes around every year and none of us are too excited about paying, you know, more taxes and taxes going up and all of that stuff, right? But, but, but ultimately Jesus is saying, listen, if you fail to pay your taxes as American uh, citizens, residents, listen, you are not only disobeying your government and liable to imprisonment, but you are also disobeying God. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You need to fulfill your earthly obligations because, oh, by the way, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who know God and love God, God says you belong to a different city anyway. You have a citizenship that is written in heaven. So while we live on this earth, we are actually 
citizens of two kingdoms or two cities. We live as a city within a city. And so we obey our earthly city, but we are most concerned about the heavenly city. And we live to God for God, which is the back half of Jesus' instruction. Not only do we fulfill our earthly obligations, but we most certainly fulfill our eternal obligations. It's not just render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but it is render to God the things that are God's. Rico Tice says that this statement, give to God the things that are God, carries devastating force. Jesus was so wise because when they thought they were talking about taxes, Jesus comes in and he cuts straight to their heart and he says, look, you're talking about coins, but I'm talking about you. <laughs> you're talking about how, my, how many coins you're supposed to give to, to Caesar, how, many, you know, how much money we're supposed to pay every, every year on our taxes. And listen, that's important, but that's not most important. Jesus says that that. that we are to give ourselves over to God because just as this denarius shows that, that this uh, is Roman currency and a portion is to go to Caesar in, in a much greater way, human beings bear the very image and inscription of God and we are to reflect who he is and to give our lives over to him every single day. Genesis 1, chap, uh, verse 27, uh, puts it like this. The very opening words of the Bible, it says this about uh, humanity. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is saying that, that as those made in the image of God, made to reflect his His. Uh, character, his morality, his spirituality, his rationality, his creativity, all of these beautiful things that, that we, how we reflect the image of God. What Jesus is saying is there is no cr creature in creation like man and woman, and we are the, the, the pinnacle of God's creation, and we are to bring him worship with our lives every single You are made in the image of God. That may be news to you today. You never even thought about that. Like, how did I get here? Why am I here? Well, Jesus is saying right here for us, yes, in an implied form, but he is pointing to Genesis 1 and saying, you have been made in the very image of God. God made you because he loves you. He's made you like him, not him, not divine, but, but like him in these various ways that I just named for us. And he wants you to reflect how great and beautiful he is by the way that you think, the way that you live, the way that you create, the way that you work, the way, yes, God is relational, the way, yes, that you love people around you. God wants you to reflect his image. Amen. Which, which means, listen, I, this isn't Jesus' point, but I just, I just want to say it because it's so pivotal to understanding that we are made in the image of God. If we are made in the image of God, if God made us like himself, that means that every human being, 
no matter their age, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their background, carries equal dignity and worth in the sight of God. That, that, that means that everyone should be treated with the same kind of love and, and, and value. I love that my kids know the definition of, of respect. When we respect people, we recognize, honor, and protect their God-given dignity and value. We recognize, honor, and protect their God-given value. That means we, we treat people, all people, with kindness. We treat people, all people, with love. We treat people, all people, with hospitality and respect because we are no better than they are. But we are all equal in the sight of God, our creator. Now, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. It's just an implication of us being made in the image of God. But I had to say it. Because it's so pivotal to our understanding and and it's so central to how we act on social media and how we read the news and all the other mess that we've seen highlighted over the past 18 months, especially. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus' main point here is that because God made you in his image, you are to give your life to God. Your life belongs to him because he made you to reflect him. Therefore, in everything that you do, in all that you are, you are to point to his greatness. We have been made to reflect God's glory and to spread his fame in everything. But sadly and tragically, we all, we all, not just speeding tickets and showing up late because you were irresponsible uh, for work. Okay, like much deeper and much more pervasive than that. Listen, we have all failed to reflect God's glory, God's image, because we don't think like he wants us to think, and we don't talk like he wants us to talk, and we don't do what he wants us to do, and we don't love like he loves, and we don't want what he wants, and we don't feel what he feels as those made in his image. And because of that, it separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God, which is why we needed Jesus Christ, the the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint. Do you hear that inscription? Imprint of his nature. Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect God-man who is always imaging God the Father, God the Son, always imaging God the Father. He came and lived the perfect life that we should have lived, died in our place so that through faith in him, we might be able to be made new on the inside and reflect God's greatness again with our lives. And when God makes us now, if you, if you follow Jesus, this is for you. If you don't yet follow Jesus, now you know why you need to follow Jesus, and I hope you will decide to follow Jesus today. <laughs> but if you follow Jesus, and if you are, are about, like, you, you, you decide to follow Jesus today or soon, listen, then this is, this is the rest of your life until you die and go to be with God forever, okay? This is, this is the journey now. It's spelled out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this very carefully. It says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we, all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, listen, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? What God is saying is that when you decide to follow Jesus and he makes you new from the inside out, now the goal of our lives, the greatest endeavor of our lives is to see who God is, to behold his glory. Do you know what it means to be behold something? I mean, I'm just going to preach a little bit, okay? So many believers in Jesus Christ do, do this with God. Let's just say the Bible is God. Yes, it's God's word, and, and we get to know God, so it's an appropriate uh, tool to use for this. Okay, so our, our beholding of God so much is like, it's like, it's like this. It's like, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just like, a, just like a quick little look, maybe like a glance, you know, if we really need something, if we're really going through something difficult, hey, God. And then, but it's just like, we go on about our business. We go on about our lives. Listen, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not being judgmental because I've been there too. I get it. We, we, all, we all get so distracted and, and we get so, uh, you know, taken by other things in life where we're not beholding God. To behold means to gaze at, to, to be locked in with. As we get to know God, as we behold who he is, listen, that is how we are changed. It's crazy. Into the same image of Jesus Christ. It's from one degree to the next. That means it's progressive. It doesn't all happen at once. You don't snap your fingers and you're like Jesus perfectly, okay? But, but day after day as you walk with him, as you struggle, as you fail and get back up, listen, you keep following after him. You keep seeing who he is. And, and it's just, oh, a little, I'm a little bit more like now and I'm thinking a little bit and I'm loving a little bit more and I'm feeling a little bit more and I'm thinking a little bit and then all of a sudden, man, we're different, These words, these words are nothing less than a miracle. These words are nothing less than a miracle. The person you look in the mirror at every morning is becoming like Jesus Christ, being transformed into the same image. That's wild. That should motivate you to wake up every morning and follow God. Wow. When we recognize we are made in God's image and we are made to reflect his image, it helps us see that our lives truly belong to God. That is the first thing that we must know. We must know our lives belong to God. But then number two, we, we pick up in verse 18, and, and we see another a truth that we must know, another encouragement here from the lips of Jesus, starting in verse 18. I want to read these verses one more time. It says this, And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. 
And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, now let me pause here and just say this. Okay, here is another group of people, another group of, of leaders in Israel who are coming to Jesus and trying to trip him up. And it, they clearly, it clearly says here, Mark helps us out. It says in verse 18 that these Sadducees do not believe that there is a resurrection. They do not believe in a spiritual or physical resurrection after a person dies. That's it. See you later. There's nothing else. So they're trying to prove some theological points here, maybe to their Pharisee friends who actually believe in a resurrection. So they go to Jesus and they, they, they ask him this, you know, uh, exaggerated theological question that is supposed to cause this theological conundrum for Jesus, okay? In other words, like he's supposed to be so confused by this example that he doesn't know what to say because what they're doing here is they're pulling from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25, where God says, hey, if if you have a brother and he dies before his wife is able to have a child and, and leave an offspring for their family, then you are responsible to take her as wife and to raise up an offspring that the family name might be perpetuated a very, very, very high value in Hebrew culture. So they pose this example and say, you know what, hey, this happened and and. This man had seven brothers, and so, you know, the first brother, and, you know, no offspring. Second brother, no offspring. Third, and just all the way down to seven, and, and there's never an offspring. But they're just posing all of this crazy scenario in order to say, hey, whose wife will she be? They're driving to this question. In verse 23, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, uh, when they rise again, whose wife will she be for the seven had her as wife. And Jesus responds here with one of the most scathing rebukes we will ever hear in the pages of Scripture. Look at verse 24. He says this. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? I mean, how's that for starting a conversation, all right? I mean, Jesus, just, you know, Jesus was the most loving human being who ever, you know, walked the face of the earth, but Jesus kept it real too, all right? So you're coming at me, let's have a conversation. Is this not the reason you are wrong? <laughs> Tell us, Jesus. Because you, Sadducees, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he goes on to talk about marriage and eternity, which we'll come back to in a minute. And then he gets into verse 26. Look at this. And he says, and as for the dead being raised, which you say you don't believe in, let's talk about the scriptures that I'm telling you you don't know very well. Because he says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? How God spoke to Moses. And what did he say? He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God of these men who died hundreds of years before. I am their God right now. 
And what Jesus is doing, this is so, this is so amazing, so, so wise of him, okay? What we need to know is the Sadducees only believed that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative. In other words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of Moses, the law of Moses, they're the only books that they deemed as authoritative. So Jesus could have taken them, you know, to uh, Isaiah 26 or Daniel 12. He could have taken them to Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11, or Psalm 49, or Psalm 73, or Job 19. And he could have been talking about, hey, resurrection here, resurrection there, resurrection there, resurrection over here. Okay, but he doesn't do that. Jesus, like a good apologist, is someone who defends their faith. He meets them where they are. He takes the belief that they hold, and he says, oh, I believe that too. You believe the books of Moses are authoritative? Well, so do I. And, and that, 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 little, that little conversation God had with Moses. Oh, by the way, do you see what Jesus is doing here? I love this. Verse 19, the Sadducees say, what? Teacher, Moses wrote for us. But what, is, what does God do? In verse 26, he says, God said. He's saying, God, the God that you say you believe in, this God is speaking to Moses who you believe in, and he's saying, I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. In other words, Jesus is, is helping them see, I am their God right now. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are simply in the dust, if they have moved from existence to non-existence, then God cannot say, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And oh, by the way, to add an extra layer to it, these were the people who believed in the covenant promises of God. So by Jesus pointing to Exodus 3 where God says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is saying, I am the God who keeps covenant. I make eternal promises, and I keep those promises forever. I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. Sadducees, you are wrong. You are quite wrong. You are very, very wrong. <laughs> we might take a note that Whenever you want to challenge someone, don't challenge the person who wrote the book. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just a bad move, but it's a move they made nonetheless. And we see that Jesus calls out their ignorance of the scriptures here and, and points to the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection from the dead, both spiritually and physically. And don't miss the irony that this same Jesus is five days later going to bodily rise from the dead. Jesus says you need to know the scriptures. That's the second thing you better know here today. But, but, but the, uh, the application is just too obvious for us, right? It's too obvious. The application for us is what? Know the scriptures. We better know the scriptures. How do we do that? Joshua 1.8 helps us out. It says this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it. You shall think about it. You shall speak it over and over and over again, day and night. That's a, a poetic a device, a, a merism that is saying day and night. Like all, at all times, it should be in your thoughts. It should be on your, 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 your words. You should meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
That is how we get to know the scriptures. We read it and we think about it and we meditate on it and we keep coming to it again and again and again. Just like we're talking about this year as a church family with our vision to spend focused face-to-face time with God every day. Because listen, I don't care how much you know about God. I don't care how much you know the scriptures. Listen, there is so, so much that you do not know. To claim that you don't have more to learn about God and what the, the infinite truthfulness of God's word is speaking to us is on par with the arrogance and the pride of the Sadducees. God help us. But let me give you some positive motivation. How, not just how do we know the scriptures, but why should we know the scriptures? 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you know the scriptures, not only will they make you wise for salvation so that you can experience salvation through Jesus Christ, but now you can live your life in such a way that you are ready, equipped for every good work that God wants you to move forward and walk in. So we see here Jesus is saying, look, you need to know your life belongs to God. You need to know the scriptures. And then finally, I'll make this quick, you need to know the power of God. You need to know the power of God. Again, it's so wild what Jesus does here in verses 24 through 27. He says, you're wrong because what? You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. But then verse 25, he argues about this power and he says this, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now listen, these these two are definitely tied together, knowing the scripture and knowing the power of God. But Jesus brings up the eternal state, the resurrected state, and he says, listen, you think that there is going to be a simple continuity from this life to the next life. You think that everything is going to be the same from this age to the one to come. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Why? You're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now, I know some of you married couples in here are saying, Jesus, did you really say that in heaven and in the next life that we're not going to be given in marriage? Because if that's how it is, Jesus, then I might try to slip one past you. Okay, even Marsha and I sometimes joke that we're going to be boyfriend and girlfriend in, in the next life. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I mean, even some, some married couples go so far to say that if there's not marriage in heaven, then I don't want to go. I mean, I hope they're not being serious. But, 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 but what, what do we miss? What do we miss when we, when we think it could be marriage, it could be anything, when we think like there's just simple continuity from this life to the next? What are we showing? We're showing that we do not know the power of God. The new age, eternal life, will be so radically different, will undergo such a transformation that we will not even be able to compare it to the life we are living right now. God is that good. Every human relationship we enjoy now, our closest human relationships will not compare to the intimacy we will experience with God and our fellow human beings in the next age. I hope that makes you kind of 
go back in your seat a little bit. It's so powerful how God is going to work and move to bring his new creation. What about this one? Our greatest pleasures in life. For example, yes, we can talk about sex in church at Redemption Hill Church. Sex is incredibly pleasurable. You can tweet that if you want, all right? But the greatest pleasures we experience in this life will pale in comparison to being in the presence of God and walking with him daily. Jesus says the the next life is so different that you have no concept of God's power, his omnipotent, all-powerful power to do something far beyond your wildest dreams. And so with these few words, Jesus refutes their position, but he gives us a vision for what is to come. It's not just that God, listen to this, it's not just that God raises the dead, it's that his power in doing so will bring us back to the place that he made us for in the beginning, perfect shalom, perfect flourishing in all of life, in the garden of Eden, and what is coming in the new creation, the new Jerusalem, where heaven is going to come to earth and touch down, and God will dwell with us forever. The place where there are no more tears, no more sickness, no more crying, no more worry, no more pain, every Everything is good. There is life, and there is abundant life and eternal life forever. <laughs> and Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying this. I want you in on it. I want you to know. I want you to know your life belongs to God. I want you to know what I've said, and I want you to know this power, this transformational power that is good for today and most certainly good for eternity. So I want to pray, and the band's going to come up and lead us in a song of response, just of the, the wild and uncontainable love of God. I hope that you will believe it today. I hope that you will receive it today. Listen, if, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the story of the Bible, and you didn't realize that, hey, God is the reason I'm here, that he made me to reflect him in all of these ways, and now I can live for him with my life because what he's done for me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Listen, my, my encouragement to you is to say yes to him today, to receive the gift of life that he offers you. But for all of us, listen, for all of us, just it may seem like we're saying the same thing every week. Guess what? We are. And we're not going to stop. Because there is always more for us. There is always so much more for us because there is always so much more in God, the infinite God who is a fountain of life that never runs dry. So God, help us believe it. God, help us believe that you love us like this, that you made us to know you and to reflect how good and great you are, how glorious you are. God, help us to believe that as we follow Jesus on the daily, on the regular, that you're changing us into the same image that we see in Jesus from one degree to the next. 
And God, one of the ways we behold you is by beholding your word, by knowing your scriptures. God, make us a church that loves the Bible. Make us a church that you, it's not that it cost Pastor Tanner for 52 weeks and Pastor John and Pastor John and Pastor Steve when he was here before we sent him to Springfield that we're talking about being fit, focused 15 minutes face to face with God. No, but because we love you, because we want to spend time being loved by you as we encounter you in your word, that we would know your power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and well in us to do whatever it is that you've called us to do. So God, bring us near to you. You're inviting us in again. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it. Again and again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.